Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jeffrey Small. He's the president of Arbor Financial, based in Florida, and author of a new book called Turning Financial Planning Right Side Up. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Hey, Jordan. It's great to be here. Just give us a little bit of background about you and your firm before we get into what you offer in the book. Sure. I'm an investment advisor with 33 years in the business. Um, we work with a multitude of folks from very large net worth clients to medium worth to small net worth. In addition to that, um, I wrote the book really as a way to beat the inside game of investing for consumers. And so it's an advocate-centered book for consumers. So you begin with what you call the moral bankruptcy of Wall Street, how Wall Street killed the American dream, and what you can do about it. So how did Wall Street kill the American dream? I knew you were going to pick that question, Jordan. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, you know, they've done it a couple different ways. I think that if we look at the way the markets are right now, the stock market valuations, are they froth or are they true value? And so the stock market's really been peppered and tenderized for growth the last nine years. First of all, by way of quantitative easing, which started really the $4.2 trillion asset purchases of QE, and then by low interest rates combined by stock buybacks. 40% of all stock market activity, the demand for stocks, consumers are unaware of this, are corporate stock buybacks. So at some point, we're going to hit the wall here, Jordan. So are you saying that it would have been better had the Fed not done quantitative easing in the crisis of 2008, 2009? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is is that there's been a, a trifecta of sorts that's re-energized asset prices and intangible assets like stocks as well as tangible assets like real estate. When we've done all of this incredible growth in the market, we're in the second best bull market of all time without any real economic growth uh, except for the last year, we've seen some real good economic growth. So I think at some point you have to understand that all of the engineering that's going on financially the peppering, the tenderizing, really was just to lift asset prices up, not really create growth in the economy. So people would say in the last year or so that that's changed and that the tax law is uh, encouraging real economic growth. The Federal Reserve stopped quantitative easing a, a while ago and has now been reducing its balance sheet and uh, starting to raise interest rates. So is, is what you're concerned about uh, being reversed? Well, it, you know, it is somewhat, but it's also being complicated because we went through the same thing in the 30s when the Fed decided to print up money and lower rates to get us out of the Great Depression. And in 1937, they reversed course and started raising rates. And that's kind of the cycle that we're in now. The difference is the fundamentals look much better uh, for the S&P 500 companies with earnings projected to be 16 to 17% this year. And, and you know, that that's a good thing. So we're kind of getting off of the... Uh, the uh, what I would call the nursing or peppering of, of the markets and valuations, but the ins the corporate stock buybacks are still going on by $50 billion a month. And so at some point, that buyback is going to get reduced as a percentage every month as interest rates keep going up because a lot of companies have been issuing bonds to purchase back their own stock, and that just shouldn't be allowed to go on. So some are saying that the tax bill is going to give a windfall, I guess is the right word for it, to a lot of companies that are going to use it to increase buybacks and dividends if they're not investing in their business. So won't buybacks actually increase instead of decrease? 
Well, they've been they've been trucking along at a at a pretty big number. They've added about what uh, close to three to four trillion dollars of worth to the market since two thousand and ten. That's a really large number. Will buybacks continue? Sure. Is there going to be surplus cash from these companies? I mean, Walmart had Walmart had two billion of surplus tax uh, tax credit cash already. They put four hundred billion of it back into bonuses wage increases and of course benefits so not all the money will go back to the employees in the rank and file but some of it will be put in the models and expansion like apple's bringing back 350 billion that's a really good number um you know they plan on hiring another 20,000 people for the next five years and so the fed is really nervous about this with all this potential for trillions of dollars coming back on shore companies increasing wages the first time we had real inflationary growth in wages in january of 2.9 percent year over year increase and so the Fed's going to raise rates the next 12 to 18 months, and it's what made the market very unstable because they're worried about the constraints on corporate profits and the, and the effect of what costs will be when they do borrow money to leverage out further from here. So I'm not clear. On one hand, you're criticizing the Fed for having increased the money supply so much out of the financial crisis and doing quantitative easing, and now it sounds like you're criticizing the Fed for raising interest rates that that could cause a kind of 1937-style uh, re reversion back to the trouble. I'm not sure where you stand on the Fed here. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not displeased with the Fed, but the, the book, Jordan, is modeled to help the consumer understand what the criteria are that are affecting the markets so they can modernize their money to reflect the state of the markets as opposed to burying their head in the sand and a passive investment strategy. How do we beat the bias that's in the market when everybody's bullish? And we're at a nine-year or 17-year peak. I mean, you, people have to open up their eyes because this is when people get hurt the worst, when investor sentiment is peaking, and, of course, the market is peaking as well. You have a section you call the market always goes up, but that's just half the story. What is the other half of the story? Well, the market runs in long-term secular trends, and these trends last 14 to 20 years, and they're either uptrends or downtrends. Bearish long-term trends are bullish. And so from 82 to 2000, that was an example of a long-term bearish or bullish trend. From 68 to 82 was an example of a long-term bearish trend. So if we go back to 1877, we'll discover these patterns in the market. And I think investors need to know that half the time, the statement of the market always going up is correct. The other half of the time, it's not it's not correct. And so you've got to be able to understand the patterns to understand how to modernize. And that's the key. So we've had a huge bull market for a long time, probably, I guess, the second longest in American history right now. What are the signs that things will change from a bull market to a bear market? Well, there's there's lots of indications. Um, number one would be looking at a you know the potential for the yield curve to flatten out or invert, and when we then that basically what that means is when we see rates drop that are short that are uh, longer term rates or cheaper than shorter term rates. The last seven times that yield curve's inverted, we've had seven for seven recessions. And at some point, you have to understand the demographic effect on the markets as well, because we have a long-term population and aging here, half the country's over 45. That will also impact the market, and that's the kind of information that's in my book that will empower consumers to get them to the level of knowledge so they can see it for themselves. So what is the demographic impact of the population getting older? I guess we're not replacing ourselves as far as the birth rate. Is that inflationary? Is that deflationary? What is the impact of having an older population? It's, it's really, it's really deflationary. It's deflationary, Jordan. You know, when people over forty-five, half the country's over forty-five now. You pay down debt, save more, and spend less. 
And so it's a a triple-headed trifecta against consumerism. We can't have inflation unless there's massive consumerism. The Fed has tried to create inflation for the last eight or nine years. They have been dramatically unsuccessful and spent trillions of dollars doing such. So on the wage side, you said, as we said, the most recent number is 2.9% wage growth. Uh, Do you think wages are going to go up significantly and is that going to put upward pressure on inflation is what, what Wall Street's so worried about right now? Well, I think it would be great to have a little inflation in the economy. It'd be great for corporate earnings. I mean, that's a good sign. Inflation's not all bad. But yeah, with wages increasing, we're going to see an uptick in spending. When when asset prices are high and people are getting wages and the economy's expanding, that's when people seem to spend the most. That's when they seem to borrow the most as well. So, you know, the Fed might want to taper that down a little bit by raising rates. They've said they've got a two-year plan to raise rates a full 2% from here with eight quarter point moves, you know, of 25 basis points per quarter for the next two years. So I suspect that will happen unless we see something more drastic on the horizon, like additional inflationary pressures and growth in the economy. So say the Fed follows through on its plan and adds two percentage points to Fed funds rate over the next two years. Is that bullish or bearish for stocks? That's bearish for stocks, and it's going to be a slow and painful descent um, in terms of how it's going to affect the markets, the stock markets, that is. And that's because uh, you discount cash flows at a lower rate when you have higher interest rates or what is the reason why i mean they're, if they're telegraphing it people know what's going to happen it's as you say going to be kind of gradual why would and, and even so you still have the fed funds at about two and a half percent after all that i guess why would that which is still historically a pretty low rate be negative for stocks well because we become addicted to low rate environment jordan i mean we're addicted to, to low interest rates and it's, yes. it would eventually and potentially cause a catastrophe financially in, in the credit markets. People can't afford it to the, this day. I don't think people, re- the, the, the economists of the Fed probably don't really realize just how sensitive the economy is going to be to the rate increase this go around. Can asset prices still increase when Fed increases interest rates? Sure they can. But it's going to affect everything from the government budget to what companies spend to what consumers spend across the board. And I think it's going to be a heck of a headwind for the economy to truly grow once we hit that point. So we see the we see rates probably peaking out in 12 to 18 months or less. I really don't see eight straight quarter point rate increases or more between now and the next 24 months. I don't think that's possible in today's environment. So you're saying that the Fed might get scared and will scale back its program of rate increases if, if it causes volatility in the markets or harm in the economy? I don't think the Fed cares about that, to be honest with you. I, I think that, you know, this is a, a completely different issue. I think the Fed's main purpose is to raise rates so the bank margins expand because they really want bank profits to expand. And I think they're going to sacrifice us all, including the markets, and as well as the consumers that are invested in the market. I don't think they care about how, you know, how they hurt the markets at all. That's not their concern. They don't like the euphoria in the market, first of all. One of the things you mentioned briefly was the effect on the federal deficit. If interest rates do keep going up, uh, we have a lot of uh, treasury bills, short-term bills out there pretty much at 0%. If rates go up to 1% or 2% on treasuries, what kind of impact would that have on the federal deficit? Well, we're spending 25% of our tax revenue on just interest only now for the debt that we have to surface. We service. We are at the tipping point of debt uh, in terms of what we have the ability to service before it starts to eat into things. You know, we got to spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year already just to cover what we spend already. So I, I don't see how they can really expand it ma- massively. And if rates go up as that debt matures at a higher rate, that's less and less money for the government's budget and more and more that's just being paid into interest with no principal reduction. So, I mean, it's, it's a disaster in the making, Jordan. 
So people say, what is the tipping point? We're roughly at 21 trillion now. Is it going to be 25 trillion? Is it 30 trillion? When, when do things kind of get out of control when, when the debt just becomes too high? Well, I think, you know, as far as that number goes, it depends on how much it's going to cost to service it. So if we have 20 trillion right now and a quarter of the tax revenue is going up and they doubled that, do you think we could afford to pay at 50% of our tax revenue with no economic growth and just interest on the debt? At what point do we start to invert and they start, you know, we have we have serious a serious financial meltdown? I mean, we're not too far away. Uh, you know, I mean, if it goes up another 10%, we're not too far away. Yeah. So there's a lot of dangers out there and people People, you're worried that there's too much euphoria under the circumstance, basically. Well, there's no doubt that there's too much euphoria in the stock market. I mean, as well as in, in the uh, in the credit markets, you know, the Fed's never had to sell assets off their books before. This is the first time this happened. We're going to spend an extra trillion dollars extra that we don't have in the budget this year, and they're going to sell off another $600 billion. So who's going to cover that $1.5 trillion, Jordan, in addition to everything else that we've got to do? I mean, it's going to imbalance the market, and everybody's kind of just waiting to see what happens. Indeed. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jeffrey Small. He's the president of Arbor Financial, and his new book is called Turning Financial Planning Right Side Up. And there is a website related to the book, which is financialplanningrightsideup.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We've all been there. Struggling to keep up with credit card payments? Searching for a simpler, safer way out of debt? Well, here it is. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a nonprofit service that has been helping people reduce or eliminate their credit card debt for over 20 years. Most of us have made late payments and even gone over our credit limits. Before we know it, our balances are out of control and we can barely afford to make the minimum payments. If this sounds familiar and you're ready to take control of your debts, call Cambridge right away at 1-800-897-2200 for a debt-free analysis. Cambridge will work with your creditors and may be able to reduce your interest rates and get you out of debt fast. In fact, Cambridge's typical debt management clients save almost $150 every month on their credit card payments, and they're debt-free in just 50 months. So there is a simpler, safer way out of debt, and it all starts with Cambridge Credit Counseling. Call 1-800-897-2200 for your free debt analysis. Cambridge Credit Counseling is a Massachusetts-based nonprofit agency providing services nationwide. For complete licensing information, Visit them online at cambridge-credit.org. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Has your small business been turned down for a loan by the bank? Is lack of capital hindering your business growth? Small businesses unable to obtain bank financing or tired of merchant cash advances can now get the financing they need. Corporate Lending Solutions provides short and long-term capital, revolving lines of credit, and unsecured business loans. Does your business need help with payables, supplies, or payroll? Corporate Lending Solutions has powerful programs to help. While getting a small business loan can be a long, daunting process, with Corporate Lending Solutions, it's simple and takes only one to three days. Call 800-261-6478 or visit CorporateLendingSolutions.com to learn more. 800-261-6478. 
Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jeffrey Small. He's a financial planner and money manager in Florida, in Melbourne, Florida. His firm is called Arbor Financial, and his new book is called Turning Financial Planning Right Side Up. Welcome back to the show, Jeffrey. Hey, Jordan. Thank you. So you have a lot of parts in the book about what Wall Street's fees are costing you. So just briefly go over what some of the fees are that people may not be aware of that is taken away from their retirement income. Well, sure. You know, fees are unfortunately a necessary evil, but I think the uh, people are amazed when I work with them. They had no idea the complete impact of what their fees would be over time once you measure them. And uh, I'll just use a very common number. It's very easy for us to see. Uh, like in the book, we illustrate how to calculate your fees so you can measure the efficiency of it. So if you have a, a 1.5% fee and maybe a decent amount of growth for a couple of years and a big correction, what happens to your actual value, your your actual 10-year net rate of return can go actually negative if the market correction is deep enough. Uh, if it's just a small correction at 25 or 30%, it could be sub 1% for 10 years as a, as a real rate of return. So it's not just about fees, but the fees definitely will impact it long term and folks just don't understand how they work. And so we try to open up their their uh, their mind to it and show them what that cost is by number one, measuring the efficiency of their money by finding out what their fees are and then illustrating that based on a, a various set of criteria. And we illustrate those in the book and we teach you how to calculate those in the book as well. So are the fees you're talking about asset management fees or are there other fees that people should be aware of as well? Well, mutual fund, the average mutual fund charges around one and a half percent. If you have money professionally managed, they're not doing it for free. They're going to charge one to one and a half percent. And if they're using funds, to uh, be part of the portfolio, then you've got a, a double layering of fees that you are completely unaware of. And most folks are a uh, very famous guy that's on TV all the time. He's He does direct investing. I won't mention his name out of professional courtesy, um, but he's, he's very bullish on the markets. And he usually uses a mix of 70% stocks, 30% fees. I just did a blended portfolio analysis for a client. He was charging 1.8% as a collective. And the client had about $2 bucks, so that's about 36000 a year. That's a lot of money in fees. If we can recapture that money over 10 years, we recapture about five dollars to $600,000 uh, of lost savings on that portfolio. And that's a velocity that just goes on forever. And so it's important to, number one, find an advisor they can measure your fees and then show you what that cost is and what the recapture potentially could be. So in response to a lot of this, people are using index funds, which have lower asset management fees. Is that the solution to keep your fees down? Well, depending upon what your, your goals are as an individual investor, indexed funds will perform with the market um, and they won't underperform the market, which is one of the reasons why folks use them besides the low fees. So that could be a potential answer. But, you know, the, the real number is when you measure the efficiency of your money, if you've got less than $1.5 million of retirement assets to live on when you retire and you're a few years from retirement or in retirement, you probably shouldn't have any risk. 
uh, in your portfolio. But if you've got more than two and a half or three million dollars in your portfolio, you can have some exposure to risk in this marketplace. So you've got to be very careful when you modernize to reflect the state of the markets and how you're positioned. So how do you charge fees at Arbor Financial? Well, we, of course, aren't doing it for free, Jordan. <laughs> right. Nobody would expect to. Right. Absolutely. No, we uh, we charge 1% to manage money here at Arbor Financial. Um, we buy individual components. We don't outsource to mutual funds. And so we're, you know, we're a lot different than the majority of the firms out there that don't buy individual components. And so we, we utilize more of a boutique-ish investment style and approach. Uh, by buying individual stocks and bonds and things of that nature. So we mitigate those fees down to their lowest point possible. Great. Now you have a chapter called The Art of Financial Self-Defense. What are some of the things people should do to defend themselves against these financial risks you've been talking about? Well, they need to know what the cost of a market downturn is in their life financially. And so that that's a very significant number. If they know Excel, they can do it themselves and put the formulas into the spreadsheets and, and do a calculation. Okay, if I earn 10% for two years, have a fee of one and a half, and the market drops 35%, you know, what am I going to have left if I average 7% thereafter? And they're going to be astounded at what the number is. It's going to be a very low number. And so the art of financial self-defense is turning zero into your hero and avoiding the market downturn, because if you truly want to outperform the markets, there's time to turn risk on, there's time to turn it off. Now, fundamentals are very strong today. The market looks very strong, uh, the company's in it. And so we don't know what the event's going to be to make the market turn in a different direction from bullishness, but everybody in the media is overhyping bullishness and probably thinks they can prevent a bear market from always, for always being bullish. And so they always think that. So I think the reality is you've got to understand how risk affects your money. So what you, you have a, a section called retirement is all about income. So for people who are retired, who've got a decent amount of capital, that's their quandary today is if they keep the money in the bank, they're pretty much getting zero or close to it. Long bonds, maybe 2.8, 2.9, but a lot of volatility and risk there. Let's go through some of the things people can do now to improve their income if they've already got capital uh, to live off of in retirement. Sure. There's a there's a great chapter in the book called The Goldilocks Zone, and it talks about the Goldilocks Zone for investors and where they should be invested for 10 to 15 years. And it really centers around how do you generate income? Now, the quandary in the financial services industry, and even Morningstar will say, you know, you can only pull out about 2.8% of your money if you're 60-40 between stock and bond mutual funds, and maybe you got a 50% chance of having some money left by the time you're 90. I, I don't want that kind of a chance. And neither is there anybody that I work with for our clients. So I think what you have to do is buy components in the book. It tells you about the Goldilocks zone. Um, the moderate bucket focuses on things that have yields and dividends and interest rates of between 4 and 7%. And if you focus on that area of investing, the dividends and the income versus the growth component, you know, your income is going to stay static, but your uh, market value won't adjust quite as bad as the market's ebb and flow or the big correction happens. You'll be, you'll be uncorrelated to the market and uh, still have the same income. So our clients are pulling out 5% on an annualized basis, Jordan, instead of that 2.8, and they're not eating into their principal. And that's the key. So let's go to some specific kind of investments you talk about in that chapter. The first one is preferred stocks. So preferreds are kind of like a, a bond in a certain way. It doesn't trade that much. But what kind of yields can people get on good quality preferreds these days? Well, in good quality preferreds and Warren Buffett type companies, we call them the diamonds. Um, we see uh, dividends of between five and 7%. And of course, a preferred works very similar to a bond, except it's not a bond, it's a preferred stock. 
has a par value, uh, a maturity, and a rate of uh, dividend that has to pay in that par value. So they're also interest sensitive, right? If interest rates keep rising, preferred stocks could go down to some extent. Oh, well, of course. Absolutely they can. And so, you know, with preferred stocks, you don't necessarily have the stock market risk, but you still have the corporate risk as well as its interest rate or inflation risk. And so if we go into a hyperinflation event like the 70s, you know, or we have a systemic problem inside of the banking or financial industry like we did in 08 and 09, you definitely don't want to own preferred stocks. You know, um, the net, the the knack on preferred stocks has been, or the caveat on preferred stocks is, they do trade daily, but volumes are light, and so if everybody heads for the exit, you're going to be stuck, and it might take a little bit of time to get out. What are some of the industries that issue preferreds that you would like? Really, the best preferreds are in the banking, financial, and insurance realms. Um, those companies are they have the best preferreds, and uh, they are bellwethers. You know, I'll mention a name, Bank of America, pays 6.5% on a par value of $25 a share. And so if you buy at today's price, it's around $26.05, you're getting about six and a quarter. The income isn't going to change if, if the stock price goes up or the stock price drops, you're still getting six and a quarter on what you invested. The next thing you talk about is corporate bonds. So for individuals, they typically go to bonds through bond funds. Do you think there's an advantage of buying individual corporate bonds? I think there's a huge advantage because, uh, you know, you're not going to have any turnover for one. You're not going to have the same interest rate risk for two. And so we know we're in a rising rate environment, Jordan, and we're in an expanding economy with inflation. And so if, if we do raise rates for the next couple of years and I hold a bond to maturity, I'm guaranteed by that company as long as that company's solvent to get my money back. And so that's a little bit better than holding a mutual fund who's going to be turning over their bond assets not caring about your losses or your yields as rates rise because you're going to be losing value. So if you've got a bond mutual fund, that's the last place you want to be today for the next two years. So you would buy individual bonds but plan on holding them to maturity. How, how low would you go on the quality rating? Would you go into the junk bond category? I don't really like anything in junk. I think there's a shortage of, of actual bond. Uh, good bonds out there. There has been for uh, the last couple of years. The market's been fairly liquid. Is it possible to get bonds that pay good at 4 and 5% that might be triple B or one letter below triple B? Yes, they're out there. But normally you have to work with a qualified financial advisor that specializes in those areas. The next thing you talk about are REITs, real estate investment trusts, uh, which own physical real estate and pay out decent dividends. But they've been hurt pretty badly lately. I mean, as interest rates have rise, the REITs have we are taking a hit. Do you, do you think they're still attractive now? Well, I think, uh, you know, you have to understand about interest rates, Jordan, is rates are going to cycle up and then rates are going to cycle back down. So interest rates are a cycle. So half of our clients understand that there's going to be some market price declines, that the income will still be good. And so if they're just taking out that income and they come out through the cycle, they're going to be just fine financially. Now, are there some rates that are very strong that pay back 90% of their net income to the stockholders that are common stock based? Yes, there are. We normally don't advocate greater than a 75 to 10% allocation as a percentage of their assets and those types of components. But if you ride the cycle out, you're going to come out just fine because there's some really quality companies whose metrics won't change despite the rate increases that are coming. There's a lot of different kinds of REITs. There's retail REITs and apartment REITs, uh, healthcare REITs. What are some of the industry sectors within REITs that you like? I think apartments are going to be hot for a long term. 
a long time now because of where we are with how many folks can't afford houses. So apartments are going to be smoking hot. Healthcare is very hot. And also hospitality. Some, we've got some very good rates and REITs in those three categories. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jeffrey Small. His new book is called Turning Financial Planning Right Side Up. And there's a website related to that, which is financialplanningrightsideup.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Attention heroes, current and former firefighters, law enforcement, military, medical, or educational professionals. Heroes can receive rewards averaging over $2,500 when they buy, sell, or refinance a home. Heroes come first. Along with the Homes for Heroes is the nation's largest hero reward program. Their mission is to provide extraordinary savings to heroes who provide extraordinary services to our nation and its communities every day. Learn how you can purchase a home for no down payment, no closing costs, and get money back at closing. Find out how you can own for less than you may pay for rent. Get your hero rewards at heroescomefirst.com. That's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, comefirst.com, 888-437-6114. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jeffrey Small. He is the president of Arbor Financial based in Melbourne, Florida. His new book is called Turning Financial Planning Right Side Up. And there's a website related to that, which is financialplanningrightsideup.com. Welcome back to the show, Jeffrey. Hey, Jordan. So we were talking about income alternatives for people who have capital but who need income from them in their retirement. Uh, We talked about REITs. uh, We talked about preferreds. And the next thing you talk about are so-called MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, Maybe just do a brief explainer of what that is and how you find ones that you like. 
Sure. MLPs are really in the energy space and they, they pay out 90% of their net income to stockholders. So it's more of a fixed income product. People don't really buy them for appreciation. They buy them for income. They're common stock based and they're generally in the energy sector. And we see a lot of refineries and pipeline distributors and natural gas producers involved in the MLP structure of, 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 uh, of their of, of, of business. So I think, um, you know, right now, energy's all over the board. Nobody really knows what's going to happen with energy. Is it going to go up? Is it going to go down from day to day? And so at this point in time, since we're exporting 3 million barrels a day and our demand is flat, uh, the global economy seems to be coming online. Nobody knows what's going to happen. We've been staying away from MLPs because they have a tendency to be quite volatile. Uh, when energy rates rise, of course, they do well. And of course, when energy prices drop, they do what? They drop. And so at this point, I, I, I'd be very cautious about the, uh, the MLP section of my book, and I would wait for that energy market to stabilize. The next thing you talk about are what are called BDCs, which is business development companies. These are companies that lend money to medium and smaller sized firms. What's the advantage of doing BDCs if you need income? Well, BDCs act as mid-tier banks, and they lend money to companies in a small cap space with $100 million to $300 million of, let's say, uh, top-line gross revenue. And uh, the various big banks and regional banks and community banks, for some reason, don't like to deal with banks that have less than $25 million of net profit. And so the BDCs fill a void there. They're not a bank, though. They're publicly traded. And the good ones, there's about 50 of them, will lend money on a senior note basis only. Uh, they won't do secondaries. They won't do equity tranches. But they're working with good quality small cap companies that are doing very, very well, uh, good balance sheet, good growth trajectories. And uh, they are able to charge more in interest, which they pass through back to the stockholder and pay a much higher dividend um, than other banks would at that at that size and time. And so we like BDCs. There's about three or four of them that we really like that are very high quality, uh, very low loss ratios, great management uh, from accounting and, and banking industries. And so there's a few out there that are very, very good. What would be some of your favorites, two or three of some of your favorites? Well, um, I don't normally give favorites because it's proprietary, Jordan. Ah, okay. Well, they have to hire you, I guess, to get them, right? That's correct. <laughs> okay, no problem. It, just generally, what kind of yields can people expect on BDCs, uh, the ones you would like these days? Um, between 6 and 9%. Uh-huh. Okay, very good. Now, the next thing you talk about are annuities. Now, you're talking about variable annuities or fixed annuities. What kind of annuities would you recommend for people needing income in retirement? Well, we, we cover annuities pretty extensively in the book, and um, we talk about the annuities that have variable or fixed index that have income riders, and how those aren't usually a good deal for consumers because they're being charged for them. Most people don't turn them on, and it's kind of a, what I would call monopoly or fictional money that it grows to because you can never walk away with it, but then they're going to pay you out your your money income from that from that fictitious rate of growth of 5 or 6 or 7%, but it's coming from your account. And so how nice are the insurance company to guarantee that lifetime income, but you got your account's got to go to zero before they pay you anything. And since insurance companies are very actuarially, actuarially sound and they have actuaries on staff, they know that by the time your account goes to zero, you're probably going to be in the grave. And so I'm not a big fan of annuities that are utilized in that sense to create income. There are a couple of good annuities that are more appreciation-centric that give you a much larger degree of growth potentially without having the risk or cost. And so it's much better for the consumer to generate income from those annuities um, than it is for them to play, you know, I've got this guaranteed lifetime income payout and I'm being charged, you know, two and a half, three percent a year for it, which is crazy. 
So a lot of people have their retirement money in IRAs, whether it be Roth IRAs or traditional IRAs. Do you think IRAs in general should be for growth stocks or for income? There's always a debate over which is a better way, a better vehicle to use inside an IRA. Well, it really depends on how old they are and how much time they have before they retire. You know, and so for the folks that are under 45, they're going to be more aggressive today for, for growth and not worry about this market drop or this market top. But uh, if we have one more 50% drop, that'd be the third one in 17 or 18 years, Jordan. I think people will lose faith in the stock market at that point. I don't know where we go from here, but it doesn't look like it's happening today. So I think we're good. So I think it's the answer is it's up to the individual and what stage they are financially. If they're over 55, of course, with their IRA, you know, using that number again, if they've got one and a half million or less in retirement savings and that's it, they shouldn't have any risk. The math says so. One 20% drop could decimate the portfolio if they're pulling out income at some point. If they've got more than two to two and a half million, they can have a third of their money at risk. So it really depends on what the numbers say for financial navigation, not what the advisor or industry or media says. You have a whole chapter on Social Security called Making Social Security Work for You. Uh, a lot of people are taking Social Security as their main source of income. Uh, are you worried about the long-term viability of Social Security and how should people plan for it if they're just reaching retirement now? Well, I think there's a couple different ways to look at Social Security. Do you want the most money or income in your 60s when you retire? Because the 60s are really kind of your go-go years. You're ready to go and do traveling and have fun. Or do we want to get the most money out of the system uh, over the 20-year period or 25-year period that we're going to be collecting on it? And so I think you have to find an advisor who will help you with that to measure and model and tailor that while you're looking at your other resources. Hopefully you have some other resources that can be coordinated to maximize one of those two scenarios, either Social Security optimization, which is the optimum income in your 60s, or Social Security maximization, which is getting the most out of the system. And so the laws changed a couple years ago, but for the folks that were 62 before December of 2015, there are still duplicative and excessive strategies you can utilize to harness additional growth in your benefits by you know, um, claiming and suspending or uh, you know other strategies in that regard that you can utilize. But for folks that are over 62 after December 15th, guess what? They're stuck. The only way they can not the only way they can get their benefits to grow is to not collect, and then it grows every year. And so to each his own, Jordan, on that question, though, I mean, it really depends on what their situation is. In general, if people can wait, is it better to wait until 70 to get the maximum benefit? If they don't need the income, it could be because it could provide more survivor's benefit for their wife. Um, you know, it could be depending upon the situation, but if they need the income, they got, they got, if they, if they retire at 66 and social security is going to be a third of their income, well, guess what? They got to collect it because they can't, yeah. if they can't make it up somewhere else. Yeah. Then you have a whole chapter on real estate, um, to sell or not to sell. What are the pros and cons of somebody retiring or just about retiring, selling the home they've been in for many years? Well, if they do it now, they're getting out at the top end of the market. So that's one of the cons. So you want to measure the market to see where it's at. Most folks will go through a period of downsizing when they retire. Uh, they'll be scaling back, lowering their home expense, you know, in taxes and insurance, uh, maybe splitting up and by having two properties that are smaller in two different locations so they can enjoy the seasons. You know, again, it depends on their situation. But if you can get out of the real estate market when it's at its peak, that's the time to do it. Or before the top of the rate cycle, that is also the time to do it. But most folks will go through downsizing to lower their expenses and keep their income as high as possible. So you're saying that you don't think real estate in general is going to appreciate that much from current levels? 
Well, I think that uh, real estate has room to run based on the laws of supply and demand and where we are today, you know, but the reality is, you know, we have to have young people buying homes and we don't have young people buying homes. We have the same people buying the same homes all over again. And eventually that cycle is going to peter out. Is it going to peter out today? No, it's not going to peter out today. Um, but is the market at the top and a good time to sell today? Sure. Is real estate going to keep increasing? It probably will keep increasing. I mean, if rates go up 2% from here on a $750,000 mortgage, it's only an extra $300 a month. It's not going to kill you. What kills you is the lack of deductibility going forward, especially on local state property taxes. So how is that going to affect particularly the high tax states where it's limited to $10,000, both the state and local tax and property tax combined? What well, impact think, is that going to have on, on housing? I, I think it's going to become an issue now, to some degree. Now, to how much it affects the the uh, uh, the sale of those assets, the sale of those properties, you know, what remains to be seen. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's it's hard to tell how much it's going to impact it. But, you know, Jordan, my book was written before that tax law change. <laughs> but you're saying that on the margin, some people may be less or more leery, let's put it that way, to take on that obligation if the property taxes and state income taxes are not fully deductible as they have been for a long time? Well, I think we're going to see a mass migration of folks um, out of those states uh, for sure, especially when they're retiring and they're getting ready to retire and they're downsizing. I think they're going to say, well, look, honey, we can't deduct this. What's the point of even living here? Let's go see our daughter in Orlando and live, you know, live somewhere in a suburb over there. Uh, the weather's better, it's cheaper, and no more state tax. As a matter of fact, we're going to have more income and less expense. And I think that that's the kind of stuff that people go through when they downsize. And so I don't think it's going to. I don't think it's going to help those markets that have the real high tax local state property taxes. So that's a major impact on the economy because that's where a lot of the growth has been, is in the high tax, high property tax states as well, California, New York, New Jersey, and so on. So you think they're going to take a pretty big hit over the long term? I think with retirees, it's going to be a crucial part of their decision or pre-retirees in terms of when do they downsize. I think it will mildly impact uh, the sale of those properties and the, the, you know, the, as far as the transactional um, ratios of those properties go in terms of buying and selling. I think it's going to affect them to a certain degree. I don't think it's going to kill it, but I think it's going to be impactful to a certain degree. Very good. And so in general, does it make sense to downsize and buy a new home as a retiree or does it make sense to rent and invest your capital? Well, you know, there's a peace of mind knowing that your house is paid for that's that that money can't buy. There's psychology to it, Jordan. And so I think, it again, it depends on what your situation is. If you're going to live somewhere long term, you probably want to own. If you're going to live there short term, you probably just want to rent something for a year to see if you like the environment and then figure it out later. And so it depends on what you want to accomplish. I mean, as far as buying a second property, though, you know, if you're looking at taking a million dollar property and buying another million dollar property with it and using the proceeds to pay for that property in cash, I will tell you that mathematically that does not make sense at all. You're much better off securing another 30 year mortgage and investing the million bucks. If you can net 5% on that, you're going to have another eight, $900,000 in 15 to 20 years that you never would have had. And so it makes no sense to pay off one house with the other's proceeds. Even though a lot of people do exactly that, right? They do exactly that because they that's that's the psychology of it. They feel better about doing that. Indeed, very good. All right, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jeffrey Small. He's the president of Arbor Financial based in Melbourne, Florida. Uh, his new book is called Turning Financial Planning Right Side Up, and the website for that book is financialplanningrightsideup.com. We'll be back after this. 
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Looking for an investment option? Consider Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. Secured Real Estate Income Strategies is a real estate-backed option offering investments with a monthly income objective. The goal of the strategy is to lend money to real estate developers. SREIS offers an 8% preferred return per annum, plus a share in any profits. While there is risk, including loss of capital, and you should carefully read the offering circular for full details, Secured Real Estate Income Strategies screens each real estate loan carefully. Call 888-444-2102 or visit securedrealestatefunds.com to learn more. 888-444-2102. Jordan Goodman is an advisor to and part owner in Secured Real Estate Income Strategies. This does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Securities offered through North Capital Private Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jeffrey Small, uh, President of Arbor Financial. It's a, a financial planning and investment firm in Melbourne, Florida. His book is called Turning Financial Planning Right Side Up. And the website for that is financialplanningrightsideup.com. Welcome back to the show, Jeffrey. Hey, Jordan. Nice to be back. So we're going to do a whole bunch of other topics here in addition to the book. Uh, the first one, your favorite, is Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. What do you make of it all? Is it something that people should be investing in for fun? Or what is your view of this whole phenomenon? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, Bitcoin is 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 really unregulated right now. And so it's, it's really legal gambling. Until we see the SEC really get in there and allow futures to happen and allow ETFs to come online, they're involved in Bitcoin, and be able to regulate that component of the cryptocurrencies, I, I don't see it ever really being legitimized. And so I see it as a bubble. You know, we saw that humongous spike in it and that gigantic drop, and now it's trying to creep back up again. And so I think it's just a way for folks that are gravitating to say, look, I want to make some money real quick. How, you know, how do I do it? And so I, I, I don't see it being here very long. I like the blockchain technology. I think that's phenomenal and very fascinating. That's here to stay. That's going to have traction. But I don't see Bitcoin as a real player in the future. So what are some of the growth areas that you would like? 
we've talked a lot about income, but for people who want their capital to grow, what areas of the market would you uh, be favoring right now? Well, I think what folks do today, Jordan, is they really drill down on uh, how to make money in the market in a rising interest rate environment. And so what you know, what are the sectors of the market that will be the hottest? And I think that uh, obviously the banking sector is on fire. And as long as we're in a positive rate adjustment or an increase on the rates annually, or the raising rates to the Fed, let's say, the banks are going to do very, very well. Their margins are going to expand. They're going to report good numbers. On top of that, the economy is expanding. So if I was a uh, retiree and I wanted to own some stock right now, I'd be looking for either a very good regional bank or one of the big national brand names. And I think the reality is, Jordan, when we look at banks, you know, in 2009, we had 11,000 banks. Today, we only have 6,000. And so banks are going through a massive consolidation phase. So there's lots of regional players or community banks that are looking to be bought out as we go through this consolidation phase. What impact is the Dodd-Frank regulation having on your business uh, and the banking business? Some people say it's going to be scaled back. Some say it isn't. How is that affecting the banking business? Well, you know, the, the problem with the Dodd-Frank Act and all the FDIC new regulations that came into play after the market, the credit correction and the banking meltdown of 2008-2009 dramatically inhibited the, the uh, development of new banks. We might have created a dozen new banks since 2010, where we're creating 50 to 100 a year before. And so the backbone of our financial system is bank creation. If we're not creating new banks, you know, our economy really isn't growing because 60% of all cons uh, small business lending comes from small community banks. And so we've got to find a way to reverse that at some point. All this other economic inertia in the economy is great, but banks are being consolidated. And so the Dodd-Frank issues are definitely uh, restricting lending, which is probably a good thing. It's one of the reasons why banks are starting to look like they're, they're decent valuations again. Um, are they going to loosen up regulations if they, if they can through Congress? If the Congress doesn't go blue in the fall, I'd look for Dodd-Frank reform to happen sometime next year. Now, another related to Dodd-Frank is the Department of Labor's so-called fiduciary rule, which was on again. Now it's been delayed. What is your impact of what's going to happen with the fiduciary rule and is it a positive or negative thing for financial advisors and their clients? Well, we're living in the age of disclosure. We're living in the age of consumer disclosure. And so whether it's the fiduciary rule or it's a group health insurance agent selling benefits to the local you know, employer with 300 employees, you have to disclose what you earn today on various products. And so, you know, and, and the customer's got to be made aware of it. And so is it going to really um, help consumers? No. Um, the longstanding, well, you know, well, well, uh, uh, the, the long-term advisors that are doing very well, that have been in the business a long time, won't get hurt one iota. It's the newer advisor, I think, that has a hard time dealing with it. Because of uh, uh, the disclosure part? Or what's the problem for a new advisor dealing with a, a fiduciary rule? Well, the, the newer advisors mainly are product-centric, and even the, the household brand name, Wirehouses. And uh, I think once people realize what they're paying in fees and what they're paying for commission, even though it might be a no-load product, they're going to run to the front door. I see. I see. Another area is health care. So we had Obamacare came in. Now they've taken away the individual mandate as part of the tax uh, reform. What is your sense of, and this is obviously very important for retired people, of what's going to be happening in the health care system and what people are going to be paying for it? Well, you know, I've had some experience in this recently, Jordan, and what I see happening really is um, uh, 
people have more options today by not being forced to get into the ACA. They can get into the ACA if they want to, um, but now we have these faith-based healthcare plans that are really high deductible uh, oriented and basically they cost significantly less than the HCA and some of them are national programs. So I mean, it's possible if you're a retiring couple and you're 62 and you're too young to get Medicare yet, well, you can pay, you know, five, six hundred dollars a month for health insurance. And who would have thought that if they join the ACA, they're paying eleven, twelve, thirteen hundred dollars a month for a decent plan. And it doesn't cover that much more. So the reality is, is that, you know, we see kind of health insurance getting creative out there. I don't know if rates are going to go up. We've had medical inflation in this country of eight percent for the last 30 years. And I, I think it would take an act of Moses to fix it. And then Medicare, which people kind of don't think about when they join 60, turn 65, are you concerned about the financial viability and strength of Medicare? Well, I think that the entitlement picture is, is the largest section of the budget now. And at some point, you know, we've got literally tens of trillions of dollars of Medicare liability on the books for the next 30 to 40 years. So I think, you know, it's, it's going to be a year by year uh, administration by administration headache and how we manage that as our population ages, there is no doubt that, that the last tax reform we've had here, this big tax break that President Trump gave us and Congress gave us, is going to probably be the last one we're ever going to see. After 2024, we really start to hit the wall on entitlements, and what you're going to see are probably taxes are going to go up. Let's talk about entitlements. So the big three are Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid. As you say, this is consuming the budget. What kind of either cuts in benefits or increases in taxes do you see happening to save those entitlements over time? Well, I think that the same thing they've been doing all along is that, you know, the more money you have under Medicare, the more you're going to pay. The more income you have, the more you're going to pay. Uh, ultimately, they're going to raise those benefits, potentially reduce Social Security to offset it. Uh, for the for the indigent folks, I don't think too much changes there. If you're under the the Medicaid guidelines for you know poverty level folks, I don't see their benefits changing. And so I see taxes for the people that are making money in this country going up to support both factions. But I see means testing even additionally to reduce the expense that the government has entitlements at some point in the future for both Social Security and Medicare. Further means testing. Now we haven't had means testing for Social Security, but that will happen. In about two minutes we have left, just kind of sum up what a difference it'll make in people's lives if they follow the advice you have in turning financial planning right side up. Well, the book is consumer-oriented to be an advocate book, a book of adv advocacy. So become the most financial literate. If you want to become the smartest investor, learn how to modernize your money to reflect the state of the markets, and learn how to accomplish what goals you should have, learn the type of, 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 of financial professional you should be working with, um, you really need to pick up a copy of this book. I didn't write it to be a bestseller. I wrote it to change the industry, my industry that I work in every day. And these are things that we do for the last 33 years with our clients. Terrific. Well, we've learned a lot this hour. Thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Jeffrey Small. He's the president of Arbor Financial based in Melbourne, Florida. Uh, his uh, new book is called Turning Financial Planning Right Side Up. Website for that, financialplanningrightsideup.com. Thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, Jeffrey. Thank you, Jordan. Great to be here. And we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.